China has emerged as one of the 21st century's most consequential nations, making it more important than ever to understand how the country is governed. Welcome to Pekingology, the podcast that unpacks China's evolving political system. I'm Jude Blanchett, the Freeman Chair in China Studies at CSIS, and on today's podcast, I'm joined by Lei Yawen, an assistant professor in the Department of Sociology at Harvard University. We'll be discussing her recent paper, Revisiting China's Social Volcano, Attitudes Towards Inequality and Political Trust in China. Yawen, thank you for joining the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. So I wanted to start by asking you about your research background and research interests. You know, your first book had been looking at the public square in China and how Beijing's attempts to control the public square actually helped create a public square. So I wanted to ask how you came from working on those sorts of issues to working on income inequality, or at least this most recent paper on income inequality. What was the question you were trying to answer when you came to this? Yeah, so I'm very interested in how Chinese people perceive inequality in China. In my previous book, I look at the emergence and growth of the Chinese public sphere and how the government has cracked down on this discursive space. And then I realized that actually many Chinese people have been discussing issues about income equality or economic inequality in general in the online space. And for example, many people have been complaining about class immobility. So that means that the second generation cannot really surpass their parents. So in the past, at least just after the economic reform, we see that many Chinese people actually surpass their parents in terms of the occupational mobility. But now many people are worried about this issue and there are a lot of discussion about like the rich second generation or the like the second generation of government officials or the poor second generation. And that's kind of led me to study the perceptions of inequality. What is the existing literature on income inequality in China find? I know there's some really important work that's been done on this phenomenon of the so-called social volcano. Can you just summarize when you started looking at the existing literature, what were the main findings and understandings? The main literature is kind of a critique of popular media discourse. So when the income equality began to rise in China, a lot of Western media began to predict that there could be some problem brought by this rising level of inequality. And there are several uh, very prominent sociologists, including my own colleague, um, Professor Martin White, and my own professor, Professor Yu Xie, um, write some, uh, wrote books and also paper on this topic. So their finding is that despite the rising inequality in China, existing studies suggest that Chinese people tend to accept or simply tolerate inequality compared with people in other countries. And Marty White wrote a book called The Myth of the Social Volcano on this topic. And he argued the idea that rising inequality would lead to a social volcano is only a myth. And sociologists in general offer two major explanations for why Chinese people accept inequality. And then both explanations are related to the Chinese context. And so first, it's argued that Chinese people tolerate inequality quality because of the cultural norm of meritocracy. So the argument can be kind of unpacked into two components. So first, there is a cultural norm that accepts different distributional outcome based on difference in individual merit. And second, people think income and wealth inequality does reflect difference in individual merits. So scholars argue that traditional Chinese political ideology has promoted merit-based inequality because certain institutions 
happens in Chinese history. For example, the imperial exams or Gaokao now kind of help people who come from more humble social origin to actually move upward. So people believe they can improve their own lives or the next generation's life through hard work, regardless of their family origin. Based on this reasoning, many sociologists argue that traditional Chinese culture is in fact tolerant of inequality. And the second argument is that because the standard of living for Chinese people have been increasing tremendously in the post-reform period, so inequality has a positive rather than a negative connotation. People think even though they are not doing well at this moment, they can still actually catch up in the future. So basically, they are very optimistic about their future. So they can actually tolerate inequality at this moment, but just expect that they have they and also their children can be able to do. Much better. So this would seem to support Deng Xiaoping's idea that you've got to let some get rich first, and that Chinese people were broadly supportive of this because they also saw, or they had an expectation, that their livelihoods or the livelihoods of their children would increase or get better tomorrow. And also, it sounds like you're saying that the literature was generally arguing that there's also a cultural level of acceptance based on differences in outcome were reflective of meritocracy, and so broadly. This myth of social volcano was arguing that, contrary to expectations in the West, that we're going to see sort of rising frustration about levels of income inequality in China. That there were inborn cultural and expectations which were limiting the possibility for instability. Is that correct? Yeah, correct. You now enter into this general argument with your own. Paper, which we're going to discuss in a moment. I wanted to ask you just a methodological question, which is: How did you do this work? What surveys were you relying on? And could you talk a little bit about how these surveys are done? So I didn't really conduct this survey. This survey was conducted by my colleague, Professor Marty White. So he began to do the survey in 2004, and until now, there have been three waves of survey. Um, in 2004, 2009, and 2019, and this is the only national survey that actually systematically investigates people's perception of inequality. And Professor Marty White collaborated with scholars in Peking universities, and in the past. It was relatively easier to do research, to do national survey. It was not that expensive, but today it's things are getting more, much more expensive. And then the survey was not continued, so there are only three waves of data, and it just provides opportunity to analyze change over time. The survey was discontinued because of political reasons, or it just became logistically too difficult. I don't really know why this was discontinued, but I suspect that this is because of funding issues. So, to just ask another question on the existing literature, you, know, you mentioned on this cultural explanation that's given. I wanted to ask you just more broadly, as a sociologist, I tend to shudder when I hear people. Use cultural explanations to explain divergent outcomes, but I wanted to ask you, just in general as a sociologist, how do you think of cultural explanations? Do you find these that have explanatory power? Because in this case, obviously, the existing research was in part relying on a cultural explanation. How do you think about cultural explanations in general? Personally, I. 
think uh, cultural explanations make sense if there's enough evidence, and then in many research, uh, scholars are able to show culture really matter. Professor Marty Wise's work is relied on the explanation of meritocracy, and actually some scholars study many many cases in the world, like they did cross national comparison. For example, there is a recently published paper written by a PhD graduates from Harvard University, my department. So he. He actually showed that not only China, but this kind of belief in meritocracy is very common phenomenon. But there are variation across time and across space. So I would say that I support cultural explanation, but only if we have evidence. So what is your argument in this paper? So we've got this idea out there that China has found a way, or Beijing has found a way to contain discontent, or that there are pre-existing cultural biases which look at rising income inequality and see it as reflections of of meritocracy, for example. What did you find in your work looking at these three waves, two thousand four, two thousand nine, and two thousand fourteen? I found evidence that shows that how people understand inequality has changed over time. So people still believe in meritocracy, but at the same time, meritocracy is not the only cultural frames in which people in China used to understand inequality. And from the survey data, I find that people also see inequality is the result of some kind of non-meritocratic factors. For example, personal family connection and family wealth. So people understand that even though. Individual merits matter, but then people have very different starting points. And I also actually did a lot of interview research, and many of my interviewees told me that they do believe you have to work hard in order to achieve economic success. But simply working hard doesn't guarantee that you will be able to success because there are just so many different variables and factor that could influence outcomes. So I found that from 2009 to 2014, increasing Chinese people began to recognize structural factors impact on equality. So they realize not on that、uh, not only individual merits but a lot of non merits related factors also shape outcomes relating to equality. What's helping to drive this shift? You know, when I was reading your paper and seeing that you'd found shifts from 2004 to 2009, but then again in a different direction from 2009 to 2014, my first thought was that there's some national level rhetoric explanation for this because I think about the mid 2000s. This was when Hu Jintao was promoting the idea of a harmonious society, and then starting in 2012, which is where we have Xi Jinping come to power, we're seeing a revival of proto-socialist themes from the Xi administration. Is top-level discourse shifting and impacting these outcomes, or are there other explanations? For example, increasing access to social media and other types of framings. I think there are a couple reasons that can explain people's shifts in attitude during Hu Jintao's reign. He already recognized the problem of increasing equality, and that's actually part of the reason why he initiated the agenda of harmonious society. And then Hu began to build some kind of welfare state, so he initiated a lot of welfare program. And I think one important turning point is about the 2008 economic crisis, the financial crisis. Because of that reason, a lot of attempts to redistribute and to really establish social welfare programs have 
been a compromised. And so you can see that actually the government has shifted its developmental agendas or they began to emphasize, for example, the importance of tech, right, technology. So shift to a different kind of developmental model based on, for example, high technology and also like knowledge-based economy. And then that's one reason. And that kind of economy, that kind of developmental model, I mean, privilege talents, right? So that's actually gave a lot of working class signal, some kind of message to working class people. And for example, I interview many people, factory workers in Guangdong area and managers who work in the factory. They told me that in the past, they see things are equal. But now, I mean, working in Guangdong, they found that a lot of resources have been distributed to talents and to companies, corporations in high tech sectors. And that's also include, for example, how the chance their children can be admitted to public school. So there are some kind of point system and the factory worker and the working class can clearly see what kind of people are appreciated more by the government and seemingly that's not the working class but the elites who have human capital so that's the one reason and the second reason is about the housing market and the rising housing prices across China especially in tier one or tier two cities and so the rising housing prices is also I think is a result of the financial crisis as well because after the financial crisis the government actually initiated this kind of stimulus package and a lot of the money actually went to the housing market and the housing prices became so high and many people including middle class just suffer they see that it's so difficult for them to move up considering the housing situation that's my explanation As I hear you tell that story, I'm thinking back though and wondering why this story wasn't also the case. Previously, why after 2008 are we seeing this shift? I can imagine, you know, I think you referenced the work of C.K. Lee in your paper, her work, which had been interviewing laid off SOE workers, finding a great deal of nostalgia for the Mao era, real or perceived, but nonetheless rising nostalgia as they're looking at the impacts of the reform agenda. I would have imagined that these inequalities and more structural explanations for these inequalities could have been the case in the 1990s as well. Why do you think these emerged only more recently? I know you've got limited access to data here. We're just talking about essentially three waves of survey data. But just as a hypothesis, why not this same level of frustration at structural or non-meritocratic results in previous periods of the reform era? I think, as you suggested before, it could also be related to access to the internet. And so there have been a lot of writing about inequality, just complaints about class immobility. And so Guan Er, that for that the second generation of things. So people kind of are able to observe and not only kind of imagine, but they can see specific case that you cannot really surpass, I mean, your parents. And then there is a clear sign and evidence of class reproduction. Action. And it has been reported by news media and written by just ordinary Chinese netizens. And actually, I also did some kind of research on censorship about inequality issue. And I realized that actually during the China and the U.S. trade war, some terminologies related to social class, because, for example, the middle class and also the working class became censored terms. So I think there have been too much discussion on this issue and then 
now issue related to inequality has become politically sensitive, and the government clearly see that this kind of discussion can influence how people think about these issues. And nowadays, the working class people have access to the internet, and they are very savvy mobile phone users, and they read social media. And of course, an important finding in your paper is that much of this frustration, or some amount of this rising frustration, is linked precisely to. Beijing or the Communist Party's own socialist discourse framing—that this is not a government which orients itself in terms of its root ideology in capitalism, but it roots it in egalitarianist socialism. So I wonder if you can talk a little bit about how socialist discourse or socialist principles and Beijing's continued emphasis on socialism throughout the reform period, but even under Xi Jinping, maybe even more so, affects perceived or frustration with rising inequality. This is a great point. I think、uh, Beijing's continuing mobilization of socialist discourse could be dangerous to itself because it actually reminds Chinese people that this country is actually built upon some kind of socialist principle and also promise of eliminating exploitation and distributive polarization. But in fact, people can know that this is not the case. So this is a dilemma for the Chinese government. I wonder if things like this year, obviously, is when the poverty alleviation campaign is now in overdrive, trying to hit poverty alleviation targets. I wonder if some of the emphasis of the Xi administration on poverty alleviation is, in part, a reflection of this. Tricky balance that Beijing has to negotiate, which is, as you say, on the one hand, since the death of Mao, economic modernization has been a core pillar of regime legitimacy. It feels like it needs to deliver livelihood improvements. On the other hand, as Deng said, some are going to get rich first, and income inequality is, in some ways, unavoidable. Some level of it. So I wonder if some of the policy emphasis under the Xi administration, like under the Hu administration of a harmonious society, is a reflection of that difficult balance that Chinese leaders need. To walk between the imperatives of economic growth, but the socialist legacies which the CCP still has to orient itself towards. Right, I think absolutely, Xi's effort to eliminate poverty is an attempt to solve. This problem, problem resulting from China's socialist legacy, but the question is how effective this agenda has been. Even though the government has been advertising this agenda and saying that it actually has produced a lot of positive outcome, but underground, as far as I know, that. Many people don't really see the benefits from this agenda because the policy implementation has always been a very difficult problem in China. How the central government can really supervise local government to implement the agenda, and then also, I mean, poverty. The problem about poverty is not the only issue Chinese people care. And the survey data actually found that more and more Chinese people care about social welfare, especially issue related to education and housing, and also health. Care, but the poverty, I mean, elevation agenda doesn't really target those important social welfare programs. Right. It's also this idea of moving beyond a narrow focus on income inequality or poverty. This, of course, was at the heart of the 19th Party Congress when they shifted the so-called primary contradiction to this idea of not just promoting growth but promoting quality of growth, right? Which right. seemed to be a recognition that they needed to move beyond a narrow focus on material outcomes to provision of environmental quality. 
provision of healthcare quality. So they seem to be recognizing that frustrations are rising or expectations, I guess, are rising about the quality of services that Beijing is able to mobilize and provide. Right. I think that's totally true. But just the, the same problem exists. To what extent this kind of recognition has been translated into practices on the ground and failed by Chinese people? So I wanted to dive into just finally another interesting finding from your paper, which was there's a lot of literature that proves or demonstrates that frustration that Chinese citizens have towards the political system is primarily channeled downward to subnational level, so provincial and local level. And that, of course, makes sense. That's where most of their day-to-day -day lived experience will be. You usually have much more interface with a local level official than you would anyone in Beijing. But you find something interesting here beyond that normal result. Can you talk a little bit about what you found about critiques of income inequality that were grounded in socialist principles and where some of that frustration was channeled? Right. So basically, I found that people who think the current inequality in China has violated socialist principles are more likely to critique the central governments and also the local governments at the same time. So my explanation is that they understand these issues are not only related to policy implementation, but also policy making. And specifically, I mean, in the survey, there are questions about the household registration system, the hukou system. And it's clear that this kind of system are set up by the central government. So basically, I think Chinese people realize that they know very well that a lot of institutions set up the central governments lead to some kind of unfair distributive outcomes. Yeah, and of course, it was always the case that previous leaders could point to the decentralization of China's political system as resulting in some of these suboptimal outcomes. It could always blame lower level officials. And of course, the Xi administration still does blame lower level officials. But as more and more power is centralized and as Xi Jinping takes more control and ownership over policy, I wonder if that translates into higher expectations of what the center and the Xi administration will be able to do. Right. More responsibility can mean more blame as well, right? And another interesting finding I found is that over time, from 2004 to 2014, more and more Chinese people become very critical of the privilege enjoyed by the politically powerful group in China. So people who tend to think politically powerful groups have too much privilege tend to critique income equality as well. Obviously, one of the more famous cases of this is Wobashir Li Gang, which of course was the overlap of political privilege with arrogance. But more importantly, this was the interface with social media is what made this example so prominent. Of course, political privilege has always existed. It existed in the Mao period, but it was hard for those examples to disseminate because People's Daily was not going to cover it. But information technology has helped accelerate and interconnect some of these grievances and frustrations. Well, we're up at half hour, so I want to thank you very much for this discussion. Just my one final question is, what are you working on next? I have been working on several projects, and I just kind of mentioned one project here. So I have been studying labor protest initiated by delivery worker in China. So now platform economy becomes very like hot phenomenon. Chinese government actually see platform economy as a kind of uh, labor reservoir to actually absorb excess labor, and so. 
if you go to China, you can see delivery workers delivering food and delivery packages on the street, but then they are not protected by labor law or labor contracts. But interestingly, there have been more and more labor protests organized by delivery workers. And I also did comparative study in France, and I found that before I did this research, I kind of expect that perhaps French workers, delivery workers, would have more protests. But my guess was wrong. I found that Chinese worker delivery workers actually are more likely to organize protests. So my new research tried to understand why. That sounds fascinating. Well, I want to thank you again. This is a great conversation. It's a great paper. I think this really helps improve our understanding of some of these central contradictions that Beijing is having to navigate. Look forward to reading your future work and want to thank you again for taking some time for a really stimulating discussion. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Jude. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts. From Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org podcasts to see our full catalog 